If you shema me holy and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Now, there's a couple interesting things about this verse in Exodus. In Hebrew, the word Shema is repeated twice in this sentence to give it emphasis. If you Shema Shema, meaning listen closely. But also notice that from God's point of view, listening is basically the same as keeping the covenant. So when God asks the people to Shema, what he means is that they listen and obey. And that's the last fascinating thing about Shema. In ancient Hebrew, there is no separate word for obey, meaning to carry out the wishes of someone who knows better than you or is in authority over you. So in the Bible, if you want to say, I will listen and do what you say, you use the single word Shema. In Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. This is why later in Israel's history, when the people were breaking their covenant promises to God, the Hebrew prophets would say things like, they have ears, but they're not listening. The Israelites, of course, could hear just fine, but they weren't actually listening or else they would act differently. And so in the end, listening in the Bible is about giving respect to the one speaking to you and doing what they say. Real listening takes effort and action, and that's the Hebrew word Shema. How can we live in God's presence? The answer is given to us in the book of Leviticus. For we in all our sinfulness cannot enter in to God's space. And the reason we can't enter in is because of who we are and who he is. Because God is perfection and we are sin. It's the same reason why darkness cannot exist within light. Because that which is dark cannot remain next to that which is bright. So if we are ever to dwell with God, we must become like light. Or as the book of Leviticus will tell us, the only way to live with God closely is to be holy as he is holy. But how can we? With all our sin and everything that's broken, how will our darkness be able to enter his presence for even one moment? Well, the book of Leviticus provides us with the answer. It's through something called atonement. Atonement is the price that has to be paid to make humans and God alike. Atonement allowed the Israelites to transfer their darkness onto an offering God had specified. And since the cost of sin is the loss of life, that atoning sacrifice had to die. But then the innocence of the sacrifice was granted to another in an act of gracious application. And that's what Leviticus calls purification, the taking of the dark and making it bright with God's holy illumination. And that's what God gave the nation of Israel, a way for them to be light like him and live near his presence in the temple. That's why this system was essential. That's why atonement was necessary. But the problem was, the effects of this ceremonial system were only temporary. Which is why what Leviticus depicts is not a finished system. Instead, it points to something else in the distance. For the light of the temple, the very presence of God, did not stay in heaven, but became flesh and blood. 
And this God in the flesh, this blood from the Father, put his own life and light on the last and final altar. Jesus' cross fulfills everything Leviticus taught and every sacrifice found within. But no longer would sinners bring their offering to God, for God would be the offering for them. And so he who is light itself took on our darkness and died for our sins. But then, in that same moment, Jesus brought God's light out to those who could never even approach it. Which is why Leviticus shows us that through atonement, we get to live with God, for Jesus has made us into holy light like he is too. Because the most astonishing part of this good news is that the light of God's presence actually comes to dwell in you. Shabbat Shalom. I am uh, glad to be with you guys today. I, I'm guessing that you're probably dressed up in your best church clothes right now, kicking it on the couch for a little home church this Saturday. i uh, got some announcements for you guys. Um, thank you guys for being so flexible with us this week due to some of the uh, scheduling issues we had with uh, our host church. Um, we just felt it was best, easiest for us to be able to just stream this service this weekend and uh, give you guys an opportunity to have some fellowship at home with your family. Uh, hopefully you're having some fellowship with some friends from the church as well. A couple quick announcements tonight, starting at 5 o'clock at Sarah Wallace's house, is the ladies' HFF women's kickoff gathering tonight. It'll be from 5 to 7 uh, in Cascade Estates. You can uh, email info at hebraicfamily.com uh, to get the address, more information. But from 5 to 7 p.m. tonight at Sarah Wallace's house, we have the HFF ladies' kickoff. That's going to include talking about some of the other uh, ladies' events that are getting ready to come up, uh, some of the moms' events, all the kind of fun stuff, plus some fellowship. And they'll be passing out the uh, Bible study they're going to be doing on prayer uh, as well. Um, 
I saw some notebooks, all kinds of fun stuff. So uh, ladies, tonight, 5 to 7 p.m., uh, we will have our first ladies HFF uh, kickoff uh, since post-COVID. So that's super exciting. Uh, next weekend is Table Fellowship. So with Table Fellowship comes kids' class. So next weekend, we will have Table Fellowship. Please make sure to uh, bring a dish to share afterwards. Have some Table Fellowship, break some bread, and... Uh, the kids will have some class. So that's going to be exciting. want to let you guys know about May 14th. So not next weekend, the weekend after. We want to uh, invite anybody who's new to our church over the last couple of months. Uh, we want you to stay with us and, and dine with us after the, the service. Get a chance to talk with you. Get a chance to meet you if I haven't already. And have an opportunity to just have some fellowship, answer some questions about the church, uh, get to know you and where, what's going on with your family. So Newcomers Lunch, May 14th, immediately following the service from 12 to 1 p.m. Uh, my wife, myself, will all be there. Uh, we'd love to meet with you guys. Um, I think that's it for now. So um, a couple of questions that I've received via email this week, and we're going to throw it up on the screen here uh, as soon as I am done. Um, people are asking how they can give online this week, and so I'll throw that up on, on the broadcast before we uh, get started into the scripture reading by Cam, and we pray that you have a great Sabbath, and we'll see you guys next week. Shalom. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, do not be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay.
can face tomorrow because Oh! 
just thank you for the opportunity to praise you, to lift our voices to you. Father, how we long for the day when we will join with the elders in the heavenly realms, continuously singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain, holy, holy, holy. Kadosh, Kadosh, Lakah. Father, we thank you for your son, Yeshua. We thank you for the Sabbath day. We thank you for your appointed times. Father, for those who are struggling, Father, I ask that you would be with their families for Felix, his father, for his family, that there would be complete healing, that there would be peace and shalom. Father, we just thank you for all the times that you have worked on our behalf, for all the times that we thought we were headed towards financial ruin and somehow you provided again with your provision. For the times where we thought we were headed towards physical ruin and you kept your covenant. Father, for all of the families and all of the generations and all of the covenants that you continue to walk through on our behalf for your name's sake, we bless your name. And Father, as we enter into this season of unleavened bread, Father, would you continuously point out to us any of the hidden leaven of sin that might be in our hearts? For it's in the name of Jesus we humbly come before you. Amen and amen. All right, kiddos, if you will, come on up to the front. We're going to go ahead and pour out a blessing on you guys today.
We got so many beautiful kids up here on this stage that we get to pour out a blessing each and every week here at HFF, where family is our middle name. So congregation, if you please rise and join with me and let us pronounce this over our children this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause faith, hope, and love to grow in you. May he make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our children on this Sabbath day, and we pray that you bless them with your very best blessing. Make the sons to be as Ephraim and Manasseh, make them fruitful and multiply, and make the daughters to be as Ruth and as Esther, make them righteous daughters of Zion. And Father, may you pour out your spirit upon them, and may they have a heart that seeks after you all the days of their lives. Father, I pray that you would protect them. Guard their hearts and minds, eyes and ears from any spirit that is not of you. And Father, I pray that you would always just put words of wisdom and words of life upon their hearts and minds and in their ears. I pray for encouragement for the parents, mothers, fathers, grandparents, elders, anyone who speaks life into these children. Father, may it be your words of wisdom that is spoken over them. Encourage us. Give us the energy that we need to keep up with them and continue to train them up in the ways that you would have us to teach them. So, Father, I pray that they would grow to have a testimony of keeping your commandments and your instructions and having a testimony of Yeshua the Messiah as their personal Lord and Savior. I thank you for our children on this Sabbath day. We count it all a blessing here at Hebraic Family Fellowship. We pray all these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, kiddos, it's your turn. Time to do the Lord's Prayer. Shabbat Shalom, guys. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you're enjoying this Saturday at home with your family. Maybe you have invited other families over. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, go ahead and, and take a second. Uh, grab your Bibles. Let's open up to Acts chapter 10. That's going to be the text by which we're going to be teaching through today. Um, if you're at home, I guess you might have your iPad up and your Bible app and all of those types of things as well. And so turn with me to Acts chapter 10. And we're going to start reading in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who had spoken to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so here we have a, a non-Jewish, a non-Hebrew individual, Cornelius. He was an Italian, and he was praying devoutly to the Lord, and the Lord had sent him an angel in a vision, spoke to him and said, go find Peter. Peter was one of the apprentices of Jesus. Peter was a Jewish apprentice of Jesus at that point in time. Now, this is, this is an unusual situation here because 
in that time, the Jewish ceremonial law for Judaism was that Jews did not associate with non-Jews. If you were a Gentile, like Cornelius would have been considered, you would not be associating with one or another. That just would not happen. And so for Cornelius to send a guard along with others to go find Peter, it had to have been of the Lord because that's not something that would have naturally been done. That's not something that they would have just gone out and said, okay, I as a non-Jewish, a non-Hebrew believer at that time would associate or send for a Jewish individual. That didn't happen. Very much like it would have been back in the times where there was segregation in the United States of America. And at that time, you would not go and you would not have an African-American man or woman who would then call for a white person to come to their house. That same type of segregation existed in the first century. And though it wasn't just about a black or a white, it was a Jewish, non-Jewish situation. You were either Jewish or non-Jewish. Now you could be born Jewish or you could convert to Judaism. The first two steps of conversion to Judaism was to be circumcised and then to be baptized. So what we have here is we have an individual who is a non-Jew who's now calling for a Jewish apprentice of Jesus to come. Let's pick up in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 8. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there was a voice that said to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time and said, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Okay, if you have been a part of a Saturday church for any period of time, you're extremely familiar with Acts chapter 10, verses 8 through 15. Those passages, those verses, are where we commonly see the doctrine and theology of a new dietary system being foretold. The problem with that, though, is that ultimately there's no other scriptural evidence to back up that this has anything to actually do about food that this is actually about what you are going to eat. So what we have to do when we approach any passage in the Bible is to make sure that we understand the entire contextual elements of why those things are there. Once we do that, it helps then provide clarity for us to be able to understand what God was truly doing and what the writer was intending for us to get. So in order for this to be about food, there has to be other context that is given. If there isn't other context, then obviously this isn't about food. This would be about something else. So let's continue reading on now in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 16, to see if the writer gives us more clarity in regards to exactly what is going on with this vision. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision was, I would have been too. 
Can you imagine at that point in time having a vision that maybe you thought was about what you eat and that there's some brand new system that God is about ready to, to lay out in front of you? Um, he was perplexed. So Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Hmm. Why would Peter have had hesitation? I can think of a couple of reasons. One, he doesn't know who these men are. One of them being a soldier, maybe he was a little bit concerned. Obviously, Messiah had been led away. Messiah had been crucified. Messiah had then ascended and resurrected. Probably not the easiest time for apprentices of Yeshua to be walking around, especially when non-Hebrew, non-Jewish people are coming and asking for them. So that's one reason why there was probably maybe some logical reason why God was like, hey, without hesitation, I need you to go with him. The other is, again, as soon as Peter finds out that they are, are Gentiles, they are non-Jews, the custom of that time was they were to have nothing to do with one another. So ultimately, there's a dual reason, I believe, here in Acts chapter 10 that the Lord is specifically telling Peter, do not hesitate. Do not hesitate to go Trust me, have faith, this is of me. Accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be their guests. The whole entire contextual element here is the fact that they're not talking about food at all. They're not talking about dining. They're talking about how we treat one another. All of this is about how believers, apprentices of Jesus interact with other people. That's it. Because ultimately in the first century, we know that there was the division that was there. But it's not just that division. It's the same division that we saw in the upper room when the 12 apprentices of Jesus were arguing with him over who was greater, who was better. This is no different than the hierarchical system that we see within our families and our jobs and our current life, even in our church. Who is better? Who is wiser? Who is more friendly? It's constantly a ladder we try to climb for status and security. It's a constant struggle for personal worth and influence. This is the context of what we have here in Acts chapter 10. The religious leaders of the first century Judaism felt that they were not to associate with anyone who had not converted to Judaism. In fact, we see Caiaphas, the high priest of the temple, the one who oversaw the betrayal and murder of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, he would not step foot in Pilate's house. 
because he did not want to be seen as unclean going into the feast. Meanwhile, he was executing a betrayal in a completely unbiblical operation against Jesus. So that's the context of what we have. We have individuals who are in a position where we're so worried about what the scripture says and what to do with it that we would rather not transgress one specific element of the scripture, but then we absolutely will use a different weight to transgress another portion of the scripture. It's not enough to just know about God. It's not enough to just know about what God said. It's not enough to just know. You have to be doers of the word. You have to execute the knowledge that God has given you. And you have to do so in an appropriate manner. You see, if an Italian like the centurion or any other non-Jew were to call and want to have them come be guests in their home to invite a Jew in, unless there was a process of conversion, that was highly uncommon, let alone to see them dining together or eating with each other. And this is why Yeshua eating with a tax collector, why Yeshua associating with the Samaritan woman, this is why this is so uncommon. This is why the yoke of Yeshua's teaching, which the yoke is an idiom for a rabbi's way of teaching the scripture, was so different than almost every other rabbi of the first century in Judaism. And we see that while Peter was wrestling with the vision that God had given him, God immediately gives him a test to see how he will interact and if the vision that he had had has had any type of positive influence on Peter. How would Peter respond to the non-Jews, the non-Hebrew people who wanted to summon him to Cornelius? How would they? Well, we see that Peter did not treat them like second-class citizens. We see that Peter actually brought them in as guests. The hospitality of Abraham. Acts 10, 23. The next day he arose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of other nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent me. There it is. There it is. 
you can infer from the other verses we've read that the vision was not about food and what you ate or a dietary system. It was about a heart posture, about how we approach other people. But there, right there, there's no question. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit with anyone of another nation, a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. How many times do we judge another individual, church? How many times do we see somebody, whether they walk into our church services or whether it be somebody who's standing on a street corner or it's somebody who sends us an email or somebody on television or how many times do we judge a person as common or unclean, unworthy of our affection, unworthy of being treated as a human being. Our social media culture has created a whole spiral of people devaluing other human beings. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius was elated. Cornelius knew the chances of Peter, a Jew, to come and meet in his house were not likely. I believe that Cornelius probably was not holding his breath. Now, maybe, maybe his faith was larger than mine. And on the vision of the Lord that he had, he knew 100% that there was no way that Peter was not coming. But most of us today, if we're being honest with each other, if we lived in that context, in that time, most of us would not have been holding our breath that they would come. Notice Peter said, you yourself know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit from any other nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So we know that there's no biblical change to the dietary commandments in the Old Testament of clean and unclean from a food standpoint. But we also know, if you've read the Old Testament, that there's no law that was given to Moses that prohibits Hebrews from associating with non-Hebrews. None. 
In fact, it would be almost unfounded if you think about it, because when the law was given to Moses at Sinai, there was non-Hebrews that were there. There were people who came as a mixed multitude that were there. So sometime between the giving of the commandments, the ketubah, the marriage document, the covenant document, the constitution, if you will, sometime between giving of that document at Sinai and the first century, the Jewish leadership completely perverted God's intention. That's what humans do. That's what we do. We, we, we interject ourselves into God's commandments and we make it about ourselves. And yet Messiah came and outpoured the Holy Spirit into the apprentices of Yeshua in the first century to show that God shows no partiality. If you were born in a $4 million mansion or you were born in the backseat of a car, God shows no partiality in his salvation, in his grace, in his mercy. Praise God. So how then would Peter have said that it was unlawful because of the laws that were created by man in the religious leadership of the first century? A couple of weeks ago, I did a, a teaching called Why the Church is Dying. In that teaching, we looked a little bit more at what the Old Testament had to say about who was and who is not part of the Hebrew people, God's people. So I'm not going to go into great depth here today and go through that. If, if you've got some questions, it's on, it's on YouTube. You can go back and look at that. But... Being a Messiah, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise that all the nations of the world shall be blessed. It is impossible for all the nations of the world to be blessed if we refuse to treat those people and those nations as having value. And at the end of verse 33... we see that everyone that was in the room at Cornelius' house was about to listen to Peter preach. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Here's the whole point of the vision. God had to give Peter a vision so that he who was raised as a Jew would understand God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea. The Jews were the men of Judea. That's what that means. 
beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God had anointed Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua HaMashiach, with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all that were opposed, oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in our country, of the Jews, and in Jerusalem. Yet they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day, made him to appear not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and dead. He, he is the one. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now that'll preach, church. That'll preach that it is he who conquered the grave. That it is he. Peter began to preach against the Jewish laws of that day. The Jewish law that showed partiality to people, meaning that they had to convert to Judaism, that they had to go through the physical circumcision, that that was the first step, and then a baptism into the conversion of Judaism. Anyone outside of that group was not to be associated with. Yet in the vision that God gave to Peter here in Acts 10, he, a Jewish apprentice of Jesus, proclaimed he knew that God did not show partiality, that anyone of any nation who fears God and does right and is acceptable to God, that they should have peace in knowing that. He hearkens back to the fact that Yeshua himself went through the Jews in Judea, starting in Galilee, which you can find the testimony in Mark chapter 1. We've talked about that before in great depth. That's where ultimately at the beginning of the chapter, John is in the wilderness. He's baptizing with water, and here comes Jesus. Jesus is baptized immediately upon the baptism of Jesus by John. When he comes out of the water, the heavens open up. An audible voice of God the Father speaks and says, This is my Son, of whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and an audible voice tells him to go to the wilderness where he will come face to face with the Satan. At that time, John was arrested. And then Jesus, after the 40 days, after overcoming the death that was the Satan of this world, he then immediately comes back into Galilee preaching, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Peter had learned the lesson of the Lord. So how did God respond to Peter's understanding of this vision and revelation? Let's look at the end of Acts chapter 10 here. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who had heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Circumcised again, those are the Jews. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, even on the other non-Jewish people. 
For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So God's response to Peter's response of the vision and the revelation was to pour out the Holy Spirit on every person in that room. God is in the business of shattering your paradigms. God is in the business of shattering your religious paradigms. Think of that for a second. The chosen people, the Jewish people, they're getting the world rocked. Rocked. Because ultimately, you have one coming, claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the one that the prophets had spoken about. They killed him, hung him on a tree. They mocked him. All of a sudden, he rises again from the dead. After rising from the dead, he shows himself. The dead came from the tombs. This is a period of time where God is utterly rocking anybody who is a witness to these things. All the paradigms of what they thought they needed to do, how they needed to act, what that looked like, God was shattering. Peter then declares after the Holy Spirit fell, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these men? Why? Why? Why would he say that? Because ultimately, the Jews who were with him, they would not baptize until they would circumcise. There is no record of any type of physical circumcision here. Now, if that were to take place, you would think that it would be extremely important for Luke in the literary style that he uses to include that into this text. Again, remember, God God is shattering, using Peter to shatter paradigms. Yet there's no mention of the fact that these Gentiles, Cornelius, his men, whoever else was in this house, that they then were taken out and physically circumcised and then baptized. So when Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these men? And then they were baptized. Peter at that time understands the vision. It is more important to be spiritually circumcised, the circumcision of the heart, than it is for the physical circumcision. Now, I'm not saying that the physical circumcision isn't important, but what that that day, that time, the whole entire Jewish law, physical circumcision, was the first thing that happened. Peter's saying that's not the most important thing. Your heart is the most important thing. Now let's continue on. Let's flip back into Acts chapter 10. We're now going to go pick up at Acts chapter 11 and continue to go in to now see what happened. In Acts chapter 11, we see that Peter had gone back to Jerusalem and he had to then face the religious leadership in Jerusalem for what just took place with the Gentiles. Now the apostles 
and the brothers who were throughout Judea, the Jews, heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went back to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, being the Jewish leadership of that day, criticized saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? What happened in Jerusalem was not exactly great. So Peter has this vision that no man is common or unclean. So as a Jew, as a Jewish apprentice in Jesus, as somebody who is very aware of the temple service and and the system and the structure and all the things that are there, it is okay for him to go and to preach the gospel and to engage with people who are not Jews. He witnesses lives transformed. He witnesses the power of God's Holy Spirit outpoured on other individuals who are not Jews. Remind you, in the the original outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's talked about in Acts, we look at that being in the temple court. So most likely, those were Hebrews who were engaged in that period of time. So now all of a sudden, they're talking to Italians outside of the temple court, and the Holy Spirit is falling. This is, this is revolutionary for people. This is revolutionary even for Peter. And yet Peter goes back to his boys, his group, his, his homies. And he's immediately questioned. Now, this is important because in Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks to us about his issues with Peter. And we see in Acts chapter 11, shortly after where we're at right here, that after Peter goes back to Jerusalem and this engagement happens, he then is sent to Antioch. Well, Paul in Galatians 2 is in Antioch and picks up having a conversation with Peter. So let's look at that. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. But when Caiaphas... Peter came to Antioch, Caiaphas, sorry, not the high priest, Cephas, Peter, Cephas came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face. Paul's saying that when Peter shows up in Antioch, dude's like getting ready to go to fisticuffs. He's frustrated with him. So Paul tells us that when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For being certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But then when he came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Okay, so Paul's take on this is that Peter went, he was eating with the Gentiles. But then when he came back to Jerusalem, he pulled himself away from the Gentiles because the circumcision party, the Jewish leadership, He feared them. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? 
We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live in God. Peter had learned that no man was unclean, that Jesus had come for all. Yet in Galatians 2, it tells us that when Peter was confronted by the Jews in Jerusalem, he adjusted his behavior in hypocrisy and did not walk in the same boldness. So Peter immediately had proven he understood the test and the vision that God had given him in Acts chapter 2. But after he had done that and he gets back with his buddies, he gets back in his home country. He gets back in the comfort of his own home. That his behavior is different. Has any of us ever struggled with being two-faced? With being some way at church and being different with your family? Being some way with this group of friends and then being completely different with another group of friends? Have some of us struggled with the insecurities of needing to feel important and fit in? And so our behavior is like a yo-yo. It goes up and down depending upon who we're talking to and depending upon what environment we're in. I would venture to, to guess that all of us have. Peter was scared of what the Jewish leadership would think. They had all acted hypocritically, including Peter. It was through their hypocrisy that even Barnabas, the one who was the mentor to Paul himself as an apprentice of Jesus, that even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas knew the temple system. He knew the sacrificial system. He knew the Levitical system. He knew all of those. And he was led astray by the hypocrisy. Peter was given an opportunity by God to be sent to the nations to show non-Jews and to teach himself that a believer in Messiah was to live this way not the way of the current religious leadership at that time. He was to be an example. And Paul was calling out Peter. If you can't even do it, how do you expect them to do it? If I, as a pastor who keeps the Old Testament laws, show you that it is okay to treat others as second-class citizens, that they are less in some way, that they are common, then how can I expect anything else from you? The law was never given for salvation. It was given to show us how to walk and how to live in a community as apprentices of God. 
Faith without works is dead. You have faith. By your faith, it is counted as righteousness to you through your salvation. And then once you have that salvation, in order to show God that your faith in God is there, you must apply your walk. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is dead. If we teach or we act or we incorporate the concepts in the context that any person is better than another. Baptists are better than Pentecostals. Messianics are better than Catholics. Whatever it is. We are going all the way back to the first century religious leadership. We are perpetrating a lie. We're showing partiality that doesn't exist and claiming that we are under the salvation of a God who shows no partiality. The same leadership that turned Yeshua over to be crucified. You have two leadership models in the kingdom of God in the first century. You have the Yeshua Hamashiach, the leadership model of God, and you have the leadership model of men. The leadership model of men is flawed because all men are flawed. Some in our own movement have already been led away by our own hypocrisy. It's my job as a pastor of this church and as a a, a pastor and influencer in this movement as a whole to make sure that none of us are led astray by our hypocrisy. Don't be fooled, church. You're just as much a sinner as anybody else. The difference is is that we come before God and we place ourselves in a community in order for us to be able to recognize our sins, to repent of our sins, and then to be able to be made whole. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Savior recognized all of humanity's sin and their inability to stop sin, and he died for it. He gave his life to atone for it, and he taught all of his apprentices the same. He gave Peter a a vision to teach him what the true gospel was. It was a gospel that showed no ethnic boundaries, No structure by which we could hold ourselves to a higher level of esteem or righteousness than any other person. One that should cause us to have compassion and mercy and a vigor to go and testify of the testimony of what God has done for each and every one of us. Some in the Christian church have preached a similar hypocrisy that we should have nothing to do with what is commonly considered to be Jewish Christians. That by keeping the laws of God, we are somehow placing ourselves in bondage. Yet these types of doctrines are hypocrisy and actually lead to bondage. Not so that we can lead others astray to another gospel, a gospel of hypocrisy. But somehow one group is better than the other. Then what advantage has 
the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, Paul continues in Galatians 2. To begin with, the Jews are, were entrusted the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it was written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you were judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteousness, unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds in his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Paul writes in Romans 3, 1 through 8, God is true. He is righteous. The faithfulness of some does not nullify the faithfulness of God. We must go to everyone with the same message. The message that Jesus died for all. That his commandments, his ways are true. And in the end, there is one law, there is one kingdom, and there is one king. There is not a separate law for the Gentiles. There are no Gentiles in the kingdom of God. If you take the king as your king, you are now grafted in to the commonwealth of the kingdom. Heirs according to the promise. That promise is for everybody. And as long as I live, I will testify to the identity and the security and the peace I have found in God. There are so many people hurting right now. There are so many people who are opposed to one another, whether it be by their political affiliation or it be by their, their cultural appropriations. It seems like every day there's an, a new reason to to tear people apart. Church, the kingdom of God is about restoring everybody back in. The kingdom of God is about all of us being sinners that Christ died for, Jew and Gentile. There is one law, there is one kingdom, and there is one king. That king gave his life for you. He gave his life for the Christians and the other denominations. He gave his life for the non-believers. He gave his life for the heathen. He gave his life for the adulterer. He gave his life for the drunk. He gave his life for the poor and for the rich. He gave his life for all. That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish 
but have everlasting life. Right now we're struggling as a country, as a people. There's war, rumors of famine. We need each other now more than ever. And just like God did in the famine in Egypt when he sent Joseph into slavery and Joseph was the salvation of those people, we need each other. Because God's already working for the salvation of his people. God's already working on behalf of his people. We need to stop dividing the kingdom of God and we need to start to be about the restoration process of the kingdom of God. The restoration of marriages, the restoration of friendships, the restorations of, of the relationships that cross doctrinal lines, that cross boundaries. Our Christian nationalism has been divisive. Our pagan washing has been divisive. God gave Peter a vision that we are not to call people common. We are not to place people underneath us. We are not to make them feel like second-class citizens because God does not make us feel like second-class citizens. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for the opportunity for us to gather via the internet Father, I pray for each and every person who is watching today, Father, that you would just empower them by the power of your Holy Spirit the same way that you did in Cornelius' house when Peter preached the gospel. You would empower them by the power of your Holy Spirit to be emboldened as a witness of your gospel, to be emboldened as a witness of their testimony of what you have done in their life, God. God, I pray that you would continue to grow them, that you would continue to show them that you are still working and that each and every one of them is still needed and still wanted and still loved. God, I thank you for all the blessings that you have bestowed upon me personally, upon this church, upon my family. Father, I thank you that you continue to mold and make my heart. You continue to mold me and make me to be more like you. Father, this week as all of us go back into the workplace, as all of us go back into the grocery stores and our daily hustle and bustle, I pray, Father, that you would give us an opportunity to testify to others of just what you've done in our life that you would remove that cultural arrogance that we might have that makes us look down our nose at other people and give us the lenses that you see people through, that we would see their hurts, that we would see their joys, we would see their grief, and we would be impacted by that, that we would care, our hearts would... Reach out to them, Father, rather than pull back. For it's in the name of Yeshua we humbly come before you. Amen.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In, in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Shalom.